Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Um, super excited for today's episode. I don't get that many co-founders on here, which maybe I should uh, uh, change that. But uh, today we're joined with uh, Mika Ahonen from Lightheart. Um, you guys have, I feel like, kind of been taking everyone by storm, at least, you know, in the last like year or two with Mr. Autofire. Um, so super excited for, for this one. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to talk about building companies, building games, all sorts of fun stuff. But before we dive into that, Mika, I always like to ask, you know, what's your story? Like, how did you get into making games? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, a pleasure to be here. Uh, I always liked games. Mm -hmm. I mean, like when I was a child, <coughs> I was playing video games. Oh, yeah. Uh, more than my mom maybe wanted me to. Oh, me too, and, me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, and look who's laughing now. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I mean, I went to university. I didn't study anything related to interactive entertainment. Uh, I'm actually, I'm an industrial engineer. But uh, but during the, the time that I was at the university, I mean, uh, towards the end of my studies, uh, mobile games started being a thing. And uh, already, when I was studying, like like a uh, Angry Birds actually happened, and uh, and I ended up at at Rovio, uh, 2011. Oh uh, wow! Still still in the still still in I was still at the university at that time. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's kind of where it started. Uh, wasn't even originally making games at Rovio. I was uh, I was. I was doing like e-commerce stuff. I was I was I was in the AngryBirds.com team that was uh, uh, basically selling plush toys and T-shirts. Oh yeah, I forgot they did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was before uh, before all the distributors had their uh, kind of a distribution set up in all parts of the world. We had a small internal uh, <laughs> uh, online storefront. Uh, so that's that's kind of that was my entry into Rovio, and uh, kind of one thing led to another, and I ended up uh, doing free-to-play games. I kind of transitioned into into games from the, uh, I guess, uh, middle management slash uh, analyst uh, type of a role uh, during the time that Rovio was transitioning into free-to-play. And yeah. uh, and I kind of had a e-commerce experience, and I liked games, and and uh, that's how I kind of ended up in uh, in in free-to-play design and product management. That's great. So then, that led to Lightheart. So how yeah. did that story come about? I mean, I, I feel like you know everyone secretly in games dreams of starting their own studio and having you know total artistic vision over things. Yeah, well, what's the Lightheart story? Yeah, so I I had. Uh, uh, so Lightheart was founded in 2019. Um, so yeah, we, we're based in Helsinki as well, uh, as, as many many other mobile developers are. And uh, it was kind of a lucky coincidence how I ended up being part of Lightheart. Um, the rest of the founders had already actually worked together on uh, on another game startup, like back in 2014. And uh, and that one got actually acquired by by next games and then they went to work for next games for a while and uh, and uh anyway then 2019 a uh, bunch of these like original folk for this earlier startup they were uh, uh, kind of free again and and up, up for something new 
And uh, uh, when I came in, they were basically like a full founding team, but they were just lacking a uh, a product guy. And uh, and I was I was at that point. I had been at Rovio for uh, I guess eight years, and I was I was really cozy. Like it was a really nice place to be. Um, and uh, and like I I could have remained at Rovio, but uh, eight years was like a long time. I felt like I want to do something new. And yeah. uh, and and then uh, then then Kalle, uh, uh, the CEO of Lightheart, um, I think he just like had a cold LinkedIn message that hey we are up for something new, if you wanna chat, uh, hit me up. And then I was just I was just kind of interested like what 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 they're up to, like like I was like yeah well, I, I wonder what Kalle is up to next. And, yeah. uh, did, did you know and, Kalle or had you worked with him? Yeah before, yeah I, I I knew him from from the Rovio days. So. Yep. So I knew him from like 20, 2011, 2012, so, so way back. Uh, and they ended up that they were looking for a product co-founder. So, uh, and I had no idea before I actually went there and, <laughs> and, and, and talk with, you know, th- talked with him over, over lunch. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's how it got started. Um, so uh, it was uh, kind of serendipitous, or what's the word? Yeah, yeah. So... You know, for a lot of people that are maybe in this stage of thinking about starting a studio or whatnot, um, do you have any advice now that you've done it um, and you've worked with co-founders? You know, how would you go about, like, uh, let's say you guys are acquired and they decide to maybe retire because, you know, they've made so much money, but you want to start a new studio. Um, How would you go about finding, you know, new folks to, to start another studio with? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Um, ideally, you already know them, right? When you start, uh, it's it's so much better if you have a like working relationship with someone and you can trust them rather than trying to build that from scratch. So, so I would, I guess, my advice would be that use the time that you have in in other companies to to build these relationships and build your network so that. Uh, if if you do end end up find, founding a company, you have kind of a uh, short list of people that you can just call up and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about this sort of a deal. Uh, would you be interested?" Um, but that's that's kind of only the finding part. Uh, that's kind of where it starts, right? Uh, I, I've been asked this question again, and and um, and I, I didn't think about this back then, but now that you ask it again, now I know what you want to answer. Uh, I think many founders, what they don't do is that they don't have these kind of uh, long, hard discussions about like values and what's your purpose? Why are you actually founding this company? Uh, what type of exit is okay to you? Um, what type of uh, company would you be willing to sell your company for in the future? Uh, what type of money can we take and what do you want don't want to take uh how much control are you willing to give away for the investors uh what happens if we run out of runway uh you should kind of have these awkward discussions before you raise any money not after i completely agree um now i i remember when i stumbled into my first successful startup um we just happened to be the right co-founders that fit together well and stuff but i didn't go through any of that stuff. And it, it's basically like, you know, the, the married at first sight 
um, TV show or whatever. Yeah, yeah, we did that, and we just got really lucky that it worked out. Um, but uh, I, I completely recommend going through and having those, uh, I'll say like religious and political discussions that you have with your girlfriend before you actually propose because, you know, the, some of those things can definitely tank relationships if you're not exactly on the same page of what you believe and what you think, where you want to go. Um, you know, some people, oh, $10 million offer. Yeah, I'll sell out for that. And then somebody else might be thinking a billion dollar exit. And that's a yeah. very different picture in terms of how fast you have to scale, how you build a business, all those different things like that. So I love that advice. That's great. Um, cool. Well, let's go back to Lightheart a little bit. So usually when you found a studio, you kind of have some sort of like central idea of either what genre or what kind of games you're going to make or whatnot. So yeah, where were you guys at? We actually didn't have that. <laughs> we didn't have that at all. We had a uh, we had a uh, f- five five guys and a PowerPoint. Um, so what we did have was a notion that we want to build this uh, kind of a modern game studio that would be a place where we ourselves would like to work in the long term. And like the idealistic vision was that people like us would also want to work there, right? Yeah. So so we we started with this uh, this notion and uh, and and ended ended up going for uh, like a self managed organizational model, which is what we what we use today uh, as well. Uh, but uh, obviously, like my role was basically to when I joined was to figure out like okay, like we have people who can make ga- games. Um, we kind of need to also make games that will eventually make money so so let's try to figure out what that box will be so so we spent the about the first month of of after we were officially founded um figuring out that together uh with with me being like responsible for kind of defining the box within we would we would be making games um but that was actually like that was after founding so uh so 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 we started kind of team first and game then yeah that's great well what kind of you know where, where'd you land what kind of games did you guys start with was was mr autofire the the first thing or you know did it take a few hits to get there yeah so uh so those of uh i guess the listeners who don't know we make these action arcade games for mobile and uh and mr autofire it's a it's an action platformer with guns so think metal slug or contra with uh, mobile friendly controls um and kind of how did that came about i think we need to go back back to the 2019 right so yeah. so we were founded in may and uh yeah like i said i was the, i was the last of the founding team to join and uh, the rest of the team was already prototyping at that stage so we had a bunch of digital products actually we had like at least we had like one uh, one top down car game that had some like card mechanics and we had like a pretty wild uh, slot game meets RPG kind of a hybrid game. And uh, at that point, like we asked the question, like what what genre, what type of games, how long production cycles, uh, how large teams, uh, all of these, we kind of thought that needs some sort of answer. And uh, now this was summer of 2019. And obviously, Archero had just come out. Uh, I think it was like somewhere in April. 
and uh, we all played it. Uh, at that point, I had been all, I had been following the mobile free-to-play uh, scene kind of for years already uh, because of my work, and um, uh, it wasn't just Archero. I think there was like, a, or maybe there still is a pattern of uh, successful free-to-play game startups or like a game studios that are actually making making a game product. And uh, and many of these are able to or were able to make big business with uh, <laughs> relatively small teams. And um, Archero isn't maybe even the best example because it was it was really well funded, uh, even though the the game team was pretty small. But but there's there's many others. There's small giant with empires and puzzles. Yep. That was like eighteen months of development with a team of twelve or something. There is a super treat with uh, solitaire grand harvest. Uh, really small team as well. Uh, tightly scoped game and obviously like supercells and peaks and later on dream games uh, all of these uh, companies managed to do a lot with 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 small amount of people and uh, these games they weren't really reinventing the wheel either uh, they were just like well executed in typically a genre that was undis- under underserved in the market so there wasn't a lot of uh, well executed uh, products out there and um, there was a couple of things that were also also like happening in the market at, at this stage hyper casual had been on the mm-hmm. rise for many many years um, and uh, obviously it's like hyper casual games they took a lot of the ad impressions by making games that look fun and you actually want to try them because they look fun that's kind of unfair right <laughs> and uh, on the IAP side everyone was like um gung-ho about fake ads and like you have to build a huge amount of uh, ad creative muscle to create fake ads so you can make fake ads and get people play your game that is actually something different and uh we, we start we, we decided that we we don't want to like fight that battle and actually a lot of these these um successes out there just marketed their game with the core gameplay so, so kind of taking this context into mind, we we thought that like, okay, there's many successes where the scope isn't huge. Maybe you're even able to ship this in months instead of years. Yep. Um, the ad creative is based on core gameplay, so mm-hmm. you don't have to build a separate organization that, that makes <laughs> ad creative for you. You actually just take capture from your game and start with that. So that's kind of the. Uh, the, the the page from the hyper casual playbook, and then like I mean, free to play systems can be largely recycled from proven games in the market. Um, I mean, like if you look at Solidaire Grand Harvest, Empires and Puzzles, but I mentioned they're kind of both have something of their own, but uh, they didn't reinvent the wheel there. Um, they are based on something that worked already, and like if you if you look at Archero, it's pretty clear that we were inspired by their progression system, and uh, I think they changed the market kind of for good uh, because they created this, I would say, a really good prototype of a progression system for free-to-play arcade games, and that's kind of where, where when we decided that okay, let's take that as a base and uh, build free-to-play arcade games there is more to there in this genre than just like you know 
Diablo-style top-down uh, dungeon delving, which is what Archero was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this was kind of the context uh, for us in 2019. And uh, uh, during the summer, we made about half a dozen prototypes, I think. And one of these was what ended up being Mr. Autofire. Uh, it was by far the most fun. Uh, already the Greybox version was super fun. So, so in the end, it was a pretty easy decision because we happened to find that um, that fun gameplay. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about that process of like creating the the prototypes and then things like that. Like, where did you guys get your inspiration from? Did did it just come to you? Were you inspired by things on social media, ads, or existing games, or a little bit of everything? Like. Um, actually, like I, I like to keep that part quite free. So, so there were quite wacky concepts as well. Um, the only limitation we set ourselves was that at, at that point, like when we prototype, is that uh, like the the prototyping brief, as we call them, um, or like a functional spec, it needs to be short, and it needs to be implementable by a programmer in a couple of days. So we basically just scoped it down so we can make many of these. And, uh, and because we did that, we were able to make many of these and and uh, and one of them ended up being good. That's great. Excuse me. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, and, and personally, like, like uh, we have, uh, like we, we have a, basically like a, everyone can make these functional specs. But uh, it turns out that it's mostly like designers and me who would do them. So, so, so most of those were done by me and 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 one of one of our designers, and and uh, and mine mine tend to be more inspired by the market and based on something that I see on the market that is almost flying but not quite, or something that I've seen on Steam to be like okay, this is a good uh, reference on Steam, but it hasn't been on free to play mobile, and uh, and. But there's many ways to approach it. That's that's my personal one. To take something that that works on another platform but hasn't been done on mobile. Yeah. So once you guys kind of had that, you know, gray box version that was pretty fun and stuff. Like, what's your next take to you know, kind of choosing an art style and all those different things like that? Like, do you guys utilize the whole? UA testing for CPIs and like gauging audience interest, or did you guys just kind of? pick it and go and it just happened to work out uh we kind of like to <laughs> pick it and go um but there's a little bit of a method behind the madness i would say so um we like to think that we only introduce process when we actually need it instead of like building a lot of structure up front but it happens to be that actually like new game decision making is one of the things where we have the process and uh Instead of spending time and money on upfront testing of uh, assets and themes and things like that, uh, we have decided that we instead make a small version of the game and test that. So, so once we commit, and in, the, in this case, we committed committed to doing um, Mr. Autofire, uh, we basically. Um, just wanted to get a small version of the game out as soon as possible. So we set ourselves a time box of three months 
And the purpose of this release is to get early signals on market ability and uh, retention. So, so, so no, no click testing. Instead, an actual game, actual ad creatives, actual store page, um, and then we make a tightly scoped game with a representative core gameplay. Release it in the main market, which is the United States, and start driving traffic to it. So we basically get a pretty good signal for uh, IPM and day one retention. Mm. And that informs us whether we want to actually build the full game or not. So, you know, from what I know for casual studios, they look for basically a two week release to start getting the game out there and tested and stuff like that. Um, and I do know that many hyper casual studios are trying to get more hybrid casual and trying to get more casual and stuff. Do you think three months is the right time frame to build a game kind of as large as this for a, a hybrid no, casual? It's, no, no, it's it, it's a totally arbitrary number. I think <laughs> actually it depends on the game that you're building. Um, what I do think is that it might be difficult to make a, um, how would I say, like representative core game, gameplay of something that will will eventually scale to have enough depth in in one or two weeks so so many of the hyper casual games uh they are so on the surface that it's hard for those that it, it's hard to build long-term progression for that type of gameplay mm -hmm. um so so that's why i'm mentally okay uh <laughs> putting a little bit more months uh in our case so so maybe but, let but, me uh, but, yeah if I ask this a slightly different way, do you think that it would have been possible with Mr. Autofire for you to have stripped away the progression level and like just had like the, the shooting levels a little bit more hyper, high, yeah, hyper casual type game and released it in like two weeks or four weeks versus like adding those additional layers, even though it was kind of scoped down to get a even earlier test? Yes, yes, I think it would have been for sure. Um, if we would have gone with uh, like more, more close to gray box, uh, Unity asset store assets, mm -hmm. um, and uh, kind of no power progression systems, we would have definitely gotten faster signal. Although then we would have had to uh, rebuild the game when we actually make it. Um, in this case, we we decided to start building on top of the mm. original game that we shipped, um, and um, at that time it made made sense because uh, it turned out we can actually make revenue with the game, and we had zero revenue before that. So, so uh, so it's so a good thing. It, it kind of <laughs> depends on on the maturity of the company as well. Like, what's your production model? Yeah, um, cool. So, so tell us, uh, hybrid casual. What is the revenue breakdown of like ads versus IAP? Is it like eighty percent ads, twenty percent IAP? Like, is is there a general like target that folks should be looking at? Or yeah, I mean, we don't really call our games hybrid casual games. I think that's a manu term. <laughs> uh, and I think players make the distinction either. I, I, they're just games, but but I can answer your question. It's 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 not a secret. We I think we're like sixty percent IAP, 
40% ads or something like that. Um, and uh, like, if you look at some of the like casual puzzle games out there, they differ from from like, I guess, zero ad revenue to about 50-50. Mm. Uh, so arguably you could call casual puzzle games having the same business model uh, as we do. Interesting. So, but but yeah, yeah. It 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 depends also what you optimize for um, and how you set up your user acquisition. Um, so so depending on the source, it it looks uh, depending on the source and the geo, the split will look very different. Love it. Okay, so this is gonna be a fun question. So looking back at Mr. Autofire and everything you guys kind of did, you know, what mistakes do you feel like you made? Or like, if you could go back and do anything differently, what would you do? Would it be spending more time on the meta design or like, yeah, where, where what would you do differently? Mm. I, I mean, there's uh, there's like two ways of approaching that question. One is like, if I had the knowledge that I had today, what decisions would I make? And the exactly. other one is like, uh, is there something that you... Uh, you kind of like uh, that I, I would add differently with the information that I had on that day. So I will answer now, like with all the knowledge that I have today, what would I do, what would I do differently? Uh, for sure, I would have uh, gone for a uh, like a more robust uh, meta structure. Like a, um, I would have took a little bit more design time to, to take the Archero model and make it a little bit more free to play, uh, which would have like, maybe like uh, increased the scope of our total business by like, you know, unlocking uh, higher LTVs. So that's probably something that, 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 that I would do if I had all the knowledge that I have today uh, in 2019. But, but uh, with the knowledge that I had back then, I don't think I would do a different decision because uh, you know it's uh, it, it's risky business trying to uh, invent progression systems. It, it's so easy to uh, to mess up. Yeah. Did you ever read the uh, the deconstructor of fun article that uh, I think Eva put out on Archero leaving money on the table? Uh, I think I read it. Yeah, but I don't remember all the details. It, it's a fascinating one. Highly highly recommend that one. I I, I love Eva. Um, <clears throat> okay, cool. Uh, so you guys have now gotten to the point where you have a successful game. I, I assume that it's profitable enough that it's at least covering salaries in the studio and stuff, which is amazing. Yeah, most, sure. most, most people don't get to that point. Um, but now you're starting to think about, you know, what is our next game going to look like? Um, so how has your studio kind of changed and how are you guys uh, approaching that? I, often see, you know, I've seen studios go under where they had a successful game. And then like people on the team feel like they're either getting stuck on this like old game, which is really like paying for all the bills, not getting to be on the new game, or you end up taking all your good people and then your existing game kind of stagnates and stuff. Like what's your guys approach been to, you know, working on a second game or, or third game? I don't know how far you guys are. Yeah. So, that's a good question, by the way. A really good question. Um, Business-wise, the live game should always come first. Um, and uh, like, 
I think a lot of us were itching to go for the next game already, like as soon as we shipped the first one, because uh, <laughs> people who make games want to make games, right? So, so, so it's natural to want to build. Yep. And um, so, so we kind of held our horses for a while uh, and finally decided that we want to try and do this uh, last year, actually. And, uh, but there's also like reasons other than just we felt like it uh, to do it. And, uh, and it's actually hard. It's hard to transition from a company with one game to company with two games. It's, it's harder than you, you'd think. And um, it would be also kind of easy to default to this live ops mode where you are, are just uh, operating the game and you can be like super profitable like this. I mean, this is, this is like, a, I mean, empires and puzzles. If, if that's your live game, uh, you're pretty well off. Uh, and, yeah. um, <laughs> and, uh, but we deli deliberately want to be a company that builds games, right? And, uh, but for us, it was, it, I mean, it was a total kind of a change of a mindset because, uh, we'd be in roughly 10 people where everyone, the whole company working on a singular thing. And, 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 uh, when you have that, it's, uh, it's small enough and clear enough that there's a lot of things that you don't have to make explicit, uh, like responsibilities, who takes care of what. Uh, who's in which team because everyone's in the same team right um, and uh, and also for founders uh, including myself it can be hard to let go and uh, and uh, not be on top of everything anymore uh, because I mean eventually you have to do that um, no matter what your discipline if you're artist programmer product uh, owner or whatever uh, if you want to scale up your company you can't be on top of everything um so we wanted to solve those so so that's why we why, why we started to do new new game um and uh we set ourselves a goal uh, to kind of try to make that transition happen during this year and uh and like me i mean not 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 take any more time that is needed but like do it properly yep. uh so that instead of having the whole company working on mr autofire we have uh, separate independent teams and all the people to support that. Um, and we're, we, I mean, we're not fully done with this yet, but uh, but it, now it's starting to look pretty good already. Uh, and I mean, we we've doubled in headcount. I think we're about twenty now, and 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 hiring more still. So so it's kind of it's kind of uh, like like when you're early on, uh, or at least like. The way we thought about it early on is that uh, we only hire people when we really need them, uh, especially if you're like on a, if you have a have a runway and, <laughs> and 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 a burn rate and you're running out of money, you 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 don't want to like hire extra people. Uh, you're just like more like, ah, can I do this myself? Or maybe I'll just call up a friend and ask how how do I do this myself or whatever. You like 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 a like a founder tends to be creative in how they solve. A problem instead of immediately hiring. So, so, so during the last year, we've kind of uh, changed our mindset from let's hire only when we ache to actually like how do we scale up this thing? Yeah, oh, that's great. So, speaking of hiring, 
what's your approach on hiring? Like, how do you find awesome people? How do you make sure they, you know, are going to fit on the Lightheart team? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say the same story. That's also quite hard. <laughs> and uh, I think for us, it was a turning point when we admitted that it's pretty hard and we are not awesome at, at finding people and getting them to get excited about us and getting them hired and uh, and all that we're actually pretty good at keeping people once we once we uh once we hire them but uh but uh but also like to our um defense the the, the market is super competitive right now so we've had had to also like step up our game uh and uh, and go out there and uh, and approach people do a lot of reach out also also the founders themselves do a lot of reach out um but yeah we started to kind of deliberately learn uh, we hired a recruitment partner on retainer actually so so we pay them no matter how many people we hire um, because we see them kind of as a partner and a coach rather than like a transactional thing yeah. and uh, we with that with that agency we've been then kind of trying to more or less systematically improve how we hire and uh, and yeah it, it gets better if you do it's kind of with a long-term learning mindset, you get better at it, higher by higher, position by position. Um, in general, we do try to keep the bar pretty high uh, in terms of skill, uh, because we kind of work in a self-managed way. Everyone needs to be uh, very like a like a self-starter type of a person, um, and uh, it's like a the cultural fit is something we also pay a lot of attention to. to uh, I, I guess the way it might show up to applicants is that we sometimes uh, it, we sometimes have quite a few rounds of interviews. So so we we are kind of okay having three four rounds of interviews just to make sure that the the cultural fit is there. That's great. Have you ever? you know, taking a shortcut, either their skills were just off the chart and you thought maybe they'd be culturally or on the flip side of like, hey, seemed like they fit really, really well culturally, but oh, they just didn't do, do so great on that programming test or whatever. Like, have you ever, you know, tried one of those? I think, yeah, I think, I think any process that you have, you have to have flexibility in it. So there will be times when you have like some candidate that is, I mean, someone might have like 12 offers on the table and and you're like, yeah, we have this process that you have to go through. So uh, if, if, if you, I mean, yeah, you, I think you have to sometimes take uh, risks, but take them knowingly. That's great. Any lessons learned from hiring that you would share with other folks that are going through the process? I think it's uh, uh, like a what's what's the word in English? Like be, be, being very honest to yourself, what you're good at and what you're not. Uh, so because it's 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 really really hard to 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 make sure someone is some a good fit or good skilled in uh, two to three hours so you're getting like a small snapshot of a person uh, 
and you have to make a pretty big decision based on this snapshot. So, of course, the decisions will sometimes turn out not right. Um, I think what made it kind of easier for me, at least, is just kind of being okay that that's the case, and and like like being okay with the with the uncertainty of it, and uh, and being okay with the fact that you know the game is the same for everyone, right? It, that it's it's. Uh, if someone says that they're a hundred percent sure that this candidate is great, they're probably also not that good at hiring. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I actually just read a couple books by uh, some of the Basecamp founders. Um, one of them was uh, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, um, but they were talking about their hiring process, which I thought was you know rather interesting. Um, and, and you said something which actually reminded me of the book, which you look for people that are really like self-managed and stuff. And so at Basecamp, what they call it is they look for people that are a manager of one. So, you know, mm. they're basically their own manager, set the goals, do all those kind of things. Um, but uh, in that, they've kind of decided internally, they go away from like tests and things like that. And they still do like a take-home project, but they actually pay you an hourly wage for doing this project. And it's like a regular type of project of like the actual work that you do. And then they kind of get to see, you know, your work within a week on a like a real-ish project kind of thing, which I, I thought was fascinating. Um, another approach I've heard people do is uh, bring people on as like a part-time contractor. So again, yeah. getting paid. And maybe I, I pick a project that's like, you know, high on my PM's list, but like low on the risk level. And, you know, it, it hasn't really needed to be done. And so it hasn't gotten prioritized. So, you know, if they come in, they do a good job on it. You get to see what it's like to work with them. Best case, your PM gets, you know, this new thing. Worst case, you, you scrap it and throw it out. And it, you know, has no negative effects on the, the overall project yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I actually, both, both of those are really good, really good approaches. Uh, our early hires were actually like pretty much what you described. So we started with uh, with a like a contractor deal, and then took them in once we found out that it worked. Um, that that model doesn't scale though because people <laughs> usually already work somewhere. But early on, it worked us worked for us really well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we do we do like to have assignments for everything. Um, we found out that an actual assignment is the best way to to figure out the skill and uh, we try to make it like small enough that it doesn't hog up a lot of time from the candidate but still something where we can actually tell about the code or or like product management or level design expertise um, but yeah that's definitely worth thinking about like if you if you can can uh, afford to have it's it's not really about the, like affording the money, but affording the time to time, yeah. to, to to manage that like a, <laughs> like an actual side project thing. But but obviously that's even a better data data point because it's more in line with what the work would actually be. Yeah, no, I love that. Oh yeah, the other thing that they do at Basecamp that I find found fascinating is they require a cover letter like in their thing, and they explicitly look at the cover letter that like people put in of like did they just like randomly apply or did they actually like research base camp and who we are and our culture? And they like outline like why they want to be here. 
And like anyone, I don't know if I could go this far, but basically if anyone didn't go through those steps and, and outline the details, they just like automatically pass on that resume without even like really reading it, um, which I found crazy. But they're like, but we really only want to work with people that really want to work here at base camp mm. with us or whatnot, which I was fascinated by. Um, but anyways, uh, I've got a few other topics that I did want to cover. So I'm going to uh, jump off of hiring. Um, so the first one, <clears throat> so, you know, games have really evolved to games as a service or live ops as we call it, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are and what your guys take has been in terms of uh, live ops in a hybrid casual or idle arcade or whatever we want to name it, you know, type of a game, Archero style yeah, so I think it's a, uh, yeah, I, I I guess it's a kind of a boring answer. I think it's pretty you know bread and butter free to play. Uh, I think what I set us apart is we're quite particular about content, so so we're okay having people working for us doing good level content, good character content. Mm -hmm. um, so so kind of like like we do believe in really good quality content. And uh, and putting kind of the content in in um, in the center of the, the live ops as well. So so so, but but that, that's not really. Uh, I I think I don't think it's actually specific to uh, to the genre. Uh, it's 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 what uh what most live ops, uh, regardless of 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 the the gay game is. Players usually get excited about great content. So so like my my actually my advice for for any. Uh, like I guess if 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 you have your first game out and are thinking about live ops, thinking about ways how you can add content to the game, in um, in a like a production smart way, and uh, and think about ways that that content that you add in the game is both fun to the players and there's a monetization hook in it for you as the developer. So so if you kind of like fulfill those three goals, uh, then you have a pretty well-functioning live ops machine so whenever and, and we're getting into my my zone because you know we make a live ops platform and stuff um <clears throat> but i always like to to think of the idea of it's always easier to sell an umbrella when it's raining outside um, yeah and in a game there's probably at least a game of any reasonable size there's probably like at least a thousand different moments when it's raining for a player. And at that particular time, you have to figure out what umbrella of what size umbrella, what color, you know, you know, with a grip on it, everything else do I give to each particular player in each of those different moments that is going to be the highest likelihood of them actually wanting to buy that umbrella. Um, and, you know, setting up and managing all that stuff is, is very tedious and very time consuming, but if you do it well, you can just have crazy retention or not retention, but, you know, engagement and monetization and stuff. Um, and I liken my experience in, in playing Clash Royale, uh, which I think honestly has some of the stupidest monetization live ops I've ever seen um, because it's like, okay, dude, I've been leveling up the Royal giant for the last three months. And rec I request that card every single time, whenever you show it in the store, that's what I buy. And now I only need, you know, like a thousand Royal giants left. 
why not just give me a little offer for like a dollar or something to just like buy the remaining Royal Giants and skip the last three weeks that I've been, you know, grinding through. Um, instead, you give me an offer for like the, um, I don't know, Canon or something. It's like, I don't even have that in any of my desks. Like, why would you do this? Um, so anyways, I ranting a little bit, uh, but I'm curious, you know, do you guys take that similar approach of, you know, trying to figure out what the umbrella is, when is it raining a personalized approach or do you take more of like a general, Hey, we're going to have like five special offers running, you know, per day. And everyone just kind of gets the same thing. Actually, we have a combination of both. I think actually clash Royale, uh, I think it's a machine that gives you those offers. Yeah. It's uh, a stupid machine. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so I think uh, there's, uh, for, for the personalized offers, right. I think there is, uh, like you could, you can do it in a rule-based way which is uh, a little bit more tedious to, to manage, mm -hmm. but it, it's uh, typically more accurate. Yeah. And then you can do it like the, the Clash Royale way that is set and forget, but, uh, <laughs> but might, might end up with, uh, with Tom not getting the umbrella that he wants. Uh, exactly. And, then, and there's good reasons for both sides, right? So, so, but actually, we, we, have, we have more, more like a rule-based system. So, so, so what tr triggers in the game when you, for example, attain a certain hero will pop up an offer. Would you like to upgrade this hero? Uh, and actually that type of system can also be set and forget, uh, but setting it up is a little bit more, more mm -hmm. work and, and you might need to change it when you change the game. Um, time, time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also do do I guess more traditional old school offers, like maybe there's a Halloween going on and we have a small Halloween offer that is like a part of the Halloween event, um, but but the the bulk of our revenue is definitely not coming from that type of a uh, uh, Gary's sale type of offers. Um, but I think like in total offers get a lot more. Um, a lot more uh, attention than maybe they should uh, <laughs> for for monetization, because in the end we are all talking about the placement, and yep. uh, and there's something in the offer that you need, right? And uh, and uh, if the need is strong enough, players will actually buy it even if there's no offer. So so typically, uh, you get the better bang for buck by going back to the the base of of the need so 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 the progression system and what you actually mm -hmm. well what is actually of value to the players and offers is just the cherry on top yeah oh, I, I totally agree with that um and even within the offers like I've, I've boosted a game's entire revenue by like 50% just by like actually wording the offers appropriately. So, you know, they would have like ax deal or something. And then you like actually spell out, why do you need this? What goal are they trying to do? It's like, you know, it's a special ax to destroy whatever yep. boss they've been struggling with. And so oh, suddenly I understand the value and you, you know, purchase that for sure. Um, okay. Uh, other thing related to live ops that I'm curious about. <clears throat> there is a article. Um, it's like Homescapes is a masterclass in live ops, um, which I, I find fascinating. And it's it's kind of the approach that I recommend a lot of games use when they're designing out their live ops schedule. But what I love about it is it shows that 
the homescapes team really knows like what their players habits are. They know like their daily lives, the time that they have and stuff. And if you look at the events that they schedule during the week, now a lot of their players, I'm assuming, but I'm pretty sure are like females 30 to 55, you know, probably have, you know, kids and, you know, soccer games and other activities and stuff throughout the week. And they don't have a lot of time to play during the week. So you look at those live ops activities and there's really no challenge to them. It's like you log in, you play like one or two games, you get some pretty cool stuff. It's like, well, I might as well log in and, and like play the game just so that I get those things. Otherwise it's basically like punishing me for not doing that. So it like trains that daily engagement, but then starting on like Friday and Saturday, they have these like intensive live ops events where you've got to win like 10 games in a row to get this, you know, really big prize. And Oh, by the way, that, that ninth level is really hard. Um, and so you end up, you know, having the perfect game and you just ran out of moves, everything's set. Oh, you just spend a little bit, get that plus fives. You can finish it. You don't have to start over again. Um, and, you know, even if you do have to start over again, you've got all this time because it's the weekend. It's like a no stress mode. Um, and it just caters to the audience and like their regular lives when they have, you know, time really, really well. Um, I've seen this done in RPG games, except uh, surprisingly enough, the time that uh, this primarily male audience actually had was on Monday. So obviously they're just playing the games at work in a meeting or something, but it worked for them. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, do you guys take a follower, a, a similar approach to really trying to deeply understand like your audience and when they have time to play the game and like how they play the game and, and designing your live ops schedules around that? Definitely. I definitely do. I actually haven't played Homescapes for like maybe three or four years, so <laughs> I might not be well-versed in the latest <laughs> of, of Homescapes live ops, but, but they were already good at least like three years ago. Um, I think the, the industry pattern seems to be like have something on every day and then have more like a session time that gives you rewards, I guess. Uh, in RPGs on, on on the weekends, like uh, and then there's like a little bit of a taste difference. Is it just Sunday or is it also also Saturday and Sunday or or or, or whatnot? But uh, but uh, Sunday seems to be the let's put most session time uh, <laughs> for the player on that day. Uh, I have to say we haven't looked into it in a very scientific way, but uh, but but in general we do also have like a more stuff going on during the weekends and uh and uh we we do try to also like design the session in a way that um the, like the first 15 minutes give you the best bang for the buck so mm. for a player who only has 15 minutes on that day they know what to do so that they don't um stay out out of the game because of that they will at least log in and use the 15 minutes to do their daily tasks uh, to get their battle pass points or whatever and um and then like the uh, diminishing return starts so if you play <laughs> play play an hour you will get still value and if you play many many hours then um, <clears throat> the value will be less and less and less I, yeah. I think that's like the modern way of doing rpg games anyway yeah yeah i remember um 
actually, uh, one of my buddies had a game and they actually spent a lot of time studying their audience. And I was really fascinated by what they, and again, they had a primarily female focused game and they identified that there were two main groups of females that played their game. Um, the first were, and I don't remember the, the names that they had for them, but they were very, uh, very clever names. Um, but it, it was like, uh, scatterbrained Susie or something. It definitely wasn't that. Um, this is a little bit insulting, but um, <laughs> it was basically like uh, this one group of women would, whenever they had time throughout the day, they would just grab the game and they'd play it. And it was usually like three minute sessions. It's like, oh, I've got, I've got me time while I'm standing in line or I'm doing this thing. And they would just like play a session. And then there was another group that would play just about the same total amount of time um, but they would like every day at 7 PM, they'd like organize their day perfectly. And it's like, now it's my time. I sit down on a couch and I play for like the two hours that, you know, Scatterbrain and Susie yep. had played in those three minute sessions. And so they had to try to figure out how to design their game so that each of those three minute sessions felt really fun and valuable, but you got the same sort of feel when you're playing it for like the two hour session and stuff. Um, and I, I just found that so interesting. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, you can teach your uh, players patterns, right? I remember there was a puzzle game we did at at, at Rovio, and uh, I think we put levels out every Friday. You know, this this is, by the way, way, way back. Uh, yeah. and, and there was a pretty wild test at some point that what if we don't put 20 levels out on Friday? What if we, we like, uh, just release a couple of levels every day? And and like the players got like super angry. It's like my whole <laughs> schedule is set so that on a Friday I can sit down and play all the new levels. How dare you do this? So we had to roll back the test. <laughs> because we had already kind of taught the players that the schedule is that new levels will become available on Fridays. Every Friday, yeah. At the same time, right? So that was a good learning. That's great. Um, cool. Uh, final topic that I'm curious about. Um, you know, game economy design is, is so key. You know, if you give away too much content, players just get bored and leave the game. And if you don't give enough, they can just become, you know, riotously angry and feel like you're, you know, overly greedy and stuff. You know, what's your, your thoughts on game economy design within this hybrid casual idle arcade uh, type of uh, a genre game? Uh, I don't think there's any like a silver bullet there, I guess. Um, I, I think I referred to this before. Um, game economy is pretty easy to mess up. <laughs> uh, and uh, people generally don't respect the task enough, I would say. Um, so my advice actually to any free-to-play economy designer is that always start with something that already works. Um, and uh, if, especially if you're delving into a new genre that you didn't build before. Uh, build your first system first based on something uh, out there and once you've built built that game and operated it for a while maybe take a little bit more creative freedom in the next system but uh, but don't try to <laughs> start from scratch uh, I, have, I, I don't know if there's any success cases out there uh, to, to try and create a complex system entirely from scratch uh, I mean, everything can be modeled and simulated, right? Uh, but players are not numbers, and, and your model will not know how your system will feel like in the long term. Uh, 
but if you if you take uh, a, a template that already works like it, it doesn't even matter like what it is if it's uh if it's like a, the the marvel strike force template that is like the heroes charge type of a system or if it's like a brawl star system for an uh pvp action game i mean whatever your template is just 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 pick one uh, and start from there uh so i guess my my uh five cents would be to look for proven examples and and put the innovation muscle in in the core game instead i love that that's great well mika i only have uh one more question and it is the unofficial question because we are on the mastering retention podcast and that is you know what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to increase you know player retention like how do you keep your players playing for longer oh that's <laughs> that's a big one <laughs> that that's a big one um I would say that, like, repeat to repeat what I said before. Do not underestimate the power of of good content and 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 content trickle. Uh, it's sometimes hard to execute. It takes people to do it, but it's something that also works. Uh, steady flow of good quality content at a predictable pace. I love that. Yeah. And if you guys want an example of a company that does a great job of like content, like check out Wooga. I think it's like June's journey, like every single day, like no matter what's going on, it's like players always get like a new room that they get to experience. And I think that is like beyond anything else, like the biggest driver to their retention and why people have stuck with that game over any of the other ones that are out there. Um, yeah, that's a really good example. That's great. Well, Mika, thank you so much for uh, reaching out. Um, if folks, you know, do have any questions about the podcast or, you know, a, a job at Lightheart, you know, is there a good way for them to reach out? Uh, yeah, actually, you can just check uh, lightheart.games slash careers, I think, for the jobs. Um, we have many open right now. Um, I guess that's the best way to 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 find us and uh feel free to send me cold connects on linkedin as well uh just type something in the in the in the notes so i will know that where you found me <laughs> sounds good all right well thank you so much thanks tom